Good morning. I'm told to use this, so I think I'll put it right here. It's a bit of a drive from Edmonton. I usually break it into two days now that there's no more, no more COVID among us. Oh, that one doesn't like to come off. Hang on a second. I'll figure this out eventually. There we go. I don't want to have to use my binoculars, so I'm just going to raise that up a little bit. Does somebody have the clicker? Oh, it's over there. Great. Just got to get everything in order. Now, Pastor Edray told me that you've been talking about human beings as uh, body, mind, and spirit. Is that right? Not necessarily in that order. Because I understand that today he was planning to transition into discussing the importance of the human body. And I think in many ways, understanding that we're not just minds is more important now than ever in our digital world where we can be very consumed with the life of the mind, uh, almost to the neglect of the life of the body, and uh, almost to begin to feel that what we, what we experience in our minds is what we really are, not so much in our bodies. Well, today I want to talk to you about how we experience God together with our bodies. So let's pray. Father in heaven, please send the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be our teacher and guide as we go into your word this morning. Help us each to take away something that will help us to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So uh, how many of you have a morning ritual? Some things that you do routinely in the morning. Okay, for me it's, um, you know, I like to, when I get out of bed, I like to have a glass of water pretty soon, right? Um, you know, I feel, especially in Colorado, or, but also Alberta, it's not as, not as dry as it used to be this year. It's very humid this year, but you sort of wake up and you feel that dry mouth and you're like, I need to get that water in, right? And uh, I, hope, I hope a lot of you are brushing your teeth, right, before you go out and encounter others in the world, right? You need to get those, that mouth freshened up with the, with the teeth brushing. And uh, some of us also shave, some more than others, yeah? And we, we freshen up the face. Um, these are rituals. Rituals are how we regulate our relationship with the world through our body. And they, when I talk about relationships, I mean that things are about other things, that things matter in terms of something else, right? Drinking the water shows that I care for my health, right? Brushing the teeth, hopefully the same thing, but I also care about what others have to experience in their nostrils as they are around me, right? And so on and so forth. Um, rituals show what we care about. And God gave us rituals to do with our bodies to show that we care about him. Let's go to Genesis, and we'll find some of the earliest rituals that are there. Um, oh, there's a typo in my slides I didn't catch. It should be Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And if you have a, a Bible with you, either in digital format or hard copy, I encourage you to dig that out. We'll be in God's Word this morning. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. I'll just wait for everybody to get the, the Scriptures out. At my home church, I usually have a Bible, so I can do it with you, but here I'm, I'm traveling light. Okay. 
Let's go there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And we might not recognize this as a religious ritual because of the way that our religious practice had gone, but as we talked about a bit in our Sabbath school class this morning, to eat together with your God in the ancient world is considered the height of religious experience. Okay? So God is telling them, you know, here's all these trees. Enjoy them together with me. That's fellowship with each other and with God. That's literally what the New Testament calls communion. Okay? This is the first communion service that God gave to humanity. Enjoy all this fruit. How many of you like fruit? All right. So you'd be fit right in with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You'll probably also fit in in heaven. Spoiler alert. Okay. Um, but, but, God then, so he gives them this wide field of action that they are to interpret. But then there's boundaries on it. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see that rituals not only go with what we call technically performances, but also abstentions. All right? When you're in a ritual network, there's things that you need to do. Um, let's say marriage, for an example. In order to get married, you need to perform a ritual, right? And it brings a new sort of relationship into place. You know, my wife and I stood in a, in a chapel in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta and said some words to one another, right? And in that particular place, in that particular environment, that meant certain things, right? We had to do these, this performance in order to enter in, to bring this new reality into effect called a marriage. Rituals especially help us to relate to immaterial things that we can't touch with our hands, like our relationship with God. But in order to stay in that relationship, there's certain things that we need to abstain from, right? I don't think I need to make myself any clearer to the adults in the room. There's also things that we need to keep doing that maintains the relationship place. God gives the same thing to Adam and Eve when he gives them moral freedom. First, he gives them the freedom to eat of all these trees and to figure out what the best way to do it is and enjoy that food together with him. But he also gives them moral freedom to opt out of the relationship by saying, if you eat from this tree, right, if you cross this line, then you're saying no to a relationship with me. Now, I don't have the time to walk through all of this with Scripture together with you this morning, but God does this in a host of other areas as well. Meanings that all pertain to our relationship with him that come from creation or from uh, the flood. Basically, our two common ancestors, Adam and Eve, and Noah and his family, right? And those meanings originate there and carry through the rest of uh, human salvation history. So, number one, uh, we're not to do spiritualism, right? The Spirit of God started creation, and we're not to go seek after any other spirits for that which the Spirit of God provides. You do that, you're out of relationship with God, right? But on the other hand, God gives us spiritual gifts by His Spirit, which we have this, this realm of activity that we can do under His guidance, okay? Uh, number two, 
Humanity is made in the image of God, and therefore we are not to make other images and bow down to them and serve them and call them gods, right? No idols. But as the image of God, we are called to act in God's place in this world and be stewards of the creation that he's given us. So there's a boundary, but there's also a realm of activity. Uh, God gives us his sacred name, which we are not to blaspheme, but we are to use that name in prayer and in worship music, uh, which in, in, in the Old Testament are pretty much the same thing. <laughs> um, God puts a boundary on our time. He says, don't work on this day, right? 24 hours, that's my time. That's the Sabbath day. Uh, but then what do we do during that day? Well, we have sacred assemblies like this one, right? And we have this realm of activity where we figure out what's the best way to come together and worship God. Uh, God gives us a boundary on our marriage relationships that I already talked about, but there's a realm of activity when it comes to our families and how we put them together and the fun things that we do and how we uh, enjoy life with one another. And finally, at the at the flood, God put a boundary, another boundary on eating, right? After, after the human beings fell into sin, there was no more tree of knowledge of good and evil we had access to. But God put another boundary after the flood, uh, which is no blood and no unclean meat, which also, well, that sort of comes in before the flood. But we are to have our sacred feasts and our sacred festivals together. I think that's something that we may not have understood well, is that... Our potlucks to God are as sacred as our preaching services. Okay? That's a holy assembly, you see. When we get together and have food and fellowship before God, that's a sacred affair. God gave the children of Israel a cycle of feasts that they were to observe before him. And that's our scripture reading that we did this morning. This is the last in that annual cycle of feasts and festivals. And God told them to, this is, it's really, you know, end of the year. This is my favorite one. It's called the Feast of Booths, but I would rather call it the Feast of Campouts, okay? Because God told them that they had to go camping at least once a year, right? They had to dwell in temporary shelters for how many days? Seven days. All the native Israelites shall dwell in those temporary shelters. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they looked like, but the, uh, the rabbis say that they needed to have at least three sides. Okay, so, you know, you're somewhat enclosed. And you do this for a particular reason. Why? Now, this is what I want to focus on, especially for the sermon. Why are they to go camping for seven days out of the year? That your generations may what? May know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We tend to think that knowledge comes exclusively from the mind. Okay? But remember, in the Bible, God made us a unity of mind, body, spirit, as, as uh, Pastor Edray has been talking with you about. Knowledge in the Bible does not occur apart from the body. And what we experience with our bodies allows us to know certain things 
that we would not be able to know without those experiences. So he says, go and camp out for seven days so that these people who never had the experience of the exodus out of Egypt, your children and their children and their children, can have this experience and come to know that I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the Bible, God has a story. Now that's a, that's a, maybe seem obvious to you, but in many branches of Christianity, God does not have a story. He exists outside of time. And anything that's outside of time cannot have a story, right? But in the Bible, God has a story. And we are to go along with his story. And in that story, God does certain activities for us that are not repeated again. What's one? Creation, right? There's only one creation. There's only one flood. There's only one exodus. There's only one cross and so on and so forth. So how do we have the experience to know that these things happen? These unrepeatable events get embodied in a ritual that we experience over and over and over again so that we can have the experience to know the part of the story that God is trying to tell us. Are you following me? Now, this is just the clearest example of this in Scripture. I mean, he just explicitly says it, but we see it everywhere when you start to look at it. And I'm skipping my slide here, but what I want you to remember is that rituals enable us to know when we experience what we espouse. Okay? We are very good at pulling out the Bible in a preaching service like this one and offering explanations. All right? And I'm giving you a lot of explanations this morning. And explanations are good. They're very important. But for an explanation to make sense, you need to have a background of experiences with which you can say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that sort of you know, fits with what I have uh, observed of life. Um, a way I like to talk about it is that when we're reasoning, we often use the form of if this and then that, right? That's often how we're offering explanations, if this and then that. Well, the word then is really doing a lot of work, right? And that sort of structure, right? The then is what ties those two things together. If this, then that, right? Well, what gives the word then its content is your whole general sense of the way things are, okay? And what gives you your whole general sense of the way things are is what you've experienced with your body through life. So this is why what we do with our bodies is very important for our knowing and how, how rituals enable us to know when we are able to experience what we what we explain or espouse with our mouths to be true. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't go off the rails with rituals. Okay, This happens uh, a lot in the Bible. Um, Mark chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, is a, a, you know, a good, obvious place to go, where Jesus tells the, uh, the people of his time, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay? So they've, they're, they're saying stuff with their mouth, right? Mentally, right? They're honoring God, but their experience, you know, what, they've, what the desires they've formed in their heart through their experiences has wandered off from God. Okay? How did that work? 
And in vain they worship me. Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he's going to explain how this is a problem. It's not a problem with what they believe. It's a problem with what they've been doing. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. So God had told them already that there were certain foods that you're not supposed to eat, right? Certain meats that are unclean. But they started to reason, well, what if we come into contact with something that has come into contact with something that was unclean? All right? Sort of like second-order uncleanness, like meta-uncleanness, you know what I mean? And they, de- they developed a new category of impurity called the common, okay? And a lot of our modern English translations sort of gloss this over and just call it all unclean. But in the New Testament, it's clear that there's two categories of uncleanness. One is uncleanness as God defined it in his law he gave to the Israelites. Another is a category of things that were just considered common because they might have come into contact with something, right? You see. And this is why Peter didn't want to go into Cornelius's house because he said those things might be common. Those people might be common, right? They might have come into contact with, you know what I'm saying? It's why when the sheet came down in his vision and he saw all kinds of animals, he didn't just rise up and kill one of the clean animals, right? Why didn't he do that? Well, he said, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean, right? The clean animals had come into contact with the unclean animals on the sheet and had become common, and he wasn't going to eat them, all right? They had, and, and so through these extra rituals that they had set up, they had put themselves a boundary that made it hard for the church to share the gospel with the Gentiles, right? The Jewish people didn't even want to come into contact with those folks because they associated with people who ate unclean meat and all kind of the, you know. So it put in this boundary through their experiences of, of adhering to this ritual of abstaining from the common. They had come to the place where they were not willing to integrate the uh, the Gentiles into the Christian church. So we have to be careful with our rituals. It's not just a matter of avoiding every possible thing that could be bad. We have to understand what God is asking us to do, where his lines are, but also understand where we have a realm of interpretation open to us where we can experience activity with each other and with God together. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, let's go there. Uh, We'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 for a bit if you want to turn to your Bibles. talks about how God modified some of these rituals when Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 to 10, we'll start there. It says, This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. So there was this whole framework of worship that God set up in his sanctuary, it involved priests who had to wash themselves. It involved food and drink that were being sacrificed. It involved God's personal presence in his sanctuary, but hidden behind a veil so that people could come and worship God and not be overwhelmed by his glory. And all of these experiences were supposed to give God's people that background understanding, that whole general sense of the way things are, 
that would allow them to accept Jesus when he came and understand what Jesus was doing. They were imposed until a time comes to set things right, but they couldn't perfect the conscience because they were only pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. Skip down with me to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So this realm set up where the sacrifices were happening, where people were coming and worshiping God in that way, where God's presence was, Hebrews is saying that was only a copy of something that already existed in heaven. And that's where Jesus has gone after his sacrifice on the cross for our sins to appear before God himself in heaven on our behalf. Verse 25, Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. How often were the sacrifices offered in that sanctuary on earth? Daily, that's right. And then there were those yearly festivals, right? And it's talking about the Day of Atonement there where the high priest would go into the most holy place and purify the whole thing, right? This only needs to happen for Jesus once. What did I say about God's unrepeatable acts? <laughs> right? One, there's an unrepeatable act that Jesus did, this sacrifice on the cross. And then he went to heaven once and for all to appear before God on our behalf. He doesn't have to do this stuff again and again like the things on earth. So those things on earth got transformed by the, by the activity of Jesus, and they got rememorialized in the New Testament. Again, I don't have time to go through Bible examples for each of these things. You could ask me later. You could ask your pastor later. I'm sure he'd be happy to under, or explain some of this. But in the Old Covenant, there was a Passover service, which uh, represented the people being taken out of Egypt by God's mighty, mighty hand of plagues that fell, and they were allowed to go. And the last plague was where the firstborn son, right? How many of you here are a firstborn son? I put up my hand. Yeah, I'm a firstborn son. So I was, if I would have been in Egypt at that time, I would have been threatened, right? I could have, been, could have died. What did they have to do in order to preserve the life of the firstborn? They had to take the blood of the lamb, paint it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses there. Interesting fact from archaeology is that for the poor people in, 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 in Egypt, the doorposts, and uh, the lintel of the door in their house were the only parts made of stone. And on those, they would inscribe the names of the people living in there as a hope that they might just make it through the afterlife. You see, the pharaohs had their big you know, pyramids with you know, their name inscribed all over the place and their body preserved and everything. That's really good afterlife insurance, right? Like they could afford the platinum package for afterlife insurance, right? But the poor people, their, their chance, you know, hopefully this will be good enough. You know, if I could just keep my name preserved in stone, then I could last as long as that, right? What is it, what is it saying when you cover that with the blood of the lamb, you see? Now this is where my, my life is going to be preserved, right? Through the sacrifice of the lamb. 
Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been slain, so let's not celebrate it with the leaven of sin. Let's celebrate it, you know, with purity. So the Lord's Supper uh, comes out of that. And, of course, Jesus ate the Passover Supper. That's where he instituted it. The purification baths become baptism and foot washing. Anointing for priests and kings becomes anointing for the sick. The laying on of hands, where you lay your hands on your sacrifice at the sanctuary, they laid their hands on the Levites and gave them over to the service of the priests. This becomes a living sacrifice. And the laying on of hands in church leaders who serve the priesthood of all believers. Let's take a look more closely at how the Lord's Supper works. I think this is sort of a paradigm for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 24, Paul writes that he received from the Lord that which he also delivered to us, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see how this experience produces knowledge? We do it and we recall what Jesus did for us in that same way, how his body was broken for us. We we break that bread with our teeth. That experience gives us a, a framework within which we can appreciate Christ's sacrifice and know that it is true. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, we tend to think that proclamation is something exclusively mental and that it is expressed in words. But here, proclamation is something physical and embodied which is expressed through the body. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when we eat the bread and we drink the cup of the communion service. Now this leads me to a question. What sort of experience are we supposed to be having when we gather together as Christian believers on a Sabbath morning here to worship God? Are we primarily focused on learning something interesting? Having a a song service that gives us a certain feel? Uh, a prayer that touches the heart. What's the whole experience supposed to be? I'm glad we're studying the book of Ephesians in the Sabbath school right now because I think it lays it out really well for us in chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? This isn't something we can do for ourselves, is it? Right? This is something that we can just appeal to God for, and he gives it to us. And what is that experience? He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Where did Jesus go after he, after he rose up from the dead? He stayed on earth for a bit, and then he ascended to heaven, into the sanctuary in heaven, appeared before God on our behalf, started that sanctuary going in the most holy place, and then sat down beside his Father on the throne of heaven, in heaven's most holy place. And what Paul is saying is that we are supposed to have that experience together with Christ Jesus. 
That's our goal as Christians. That's, 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 that's what we need to have that feeling, that we are together with Christ in heavenly places. I argue that's what we should be feeling when we gather together for worship as Christian believers. That in the, and then that shows us, that gives us knowledge that God's promise is true. That in the ages to come, Jesus will show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness. Or God will show the exceeding riches of his uh, grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A lot of other Christian traditions understand that some experience like this is important for worship. In liturgical churches, I'm talking Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, they have reproduced the Old Testament sanctuary in the church building on earth. And if you go in and learn the terminology, you'll see that there are, there's a place called a tabernacle in there, right? Where the host is kept. That is meant to be like uh, the, the communion wafer, which becomes, in a spiritual sense, the actual body and blood of Christ, which is given to the worshipers as a sacrifice of the Mass when they meet together. Um, so the focus is on encountering God and having experience with Him in His sanctuary. But where is that sanctuary in these services? Is it in heaven? Are they directing their attention to where God is seated before Christ? No, the, in- the, the intention is that Jesus comes down and you receive Him in the Eucharist. Do you understand? This is, and I'm not trying to say that these are not, you know, Christian worship services or anything. I will go and I'll worship with these people from time to time. Um, I'll abstain from the Mass because I don't believe that, you know, that's the literal body of Christ, right? But there's beautiful worship here. Um, they even have literal anointing in the Anglican tradition for the monarch. Just as in the Old Testament, they anointed the priests and the kings. So I don't know if you, any of you catch the coronation of King Charles III. I watch that because I love that music, okay? If you want to have the best, like the Anglicans do it like nobody else. But the high point of that service is where they put him behind a veil and pour the oil on him, just as was done for the, in the Old Testament, and anoint, anoint the king, Okay? All of these things that are supposed to have been transformed and now our direction is supposed to be brought to heaven have been put down here on earth. And it was prophesied in the Bible that this would happen. It's called the abomination of desolation, which would said would happen for one, uh, uh, 1,290 days. Those are symbolic days, years, during the Middle Ages. This abomination of desolation is a word that Daniel uses to talk about when God's sanctuary gets messed up. And this is what happens is God's sanctuary in heaven gets messed up. Not because Satan can go up there and, you know, flip over the furniture or something, but because in the sanctuary on earth, the church where God dwells by his spirit, our attention is no longer being directed to where Jesus and God are in heaven, but has been brought down to a human uh, performance here on earth that no longer connects us to heaven. Now that has been, uh, you know, of course, the majority of Christians of the world still worship in these traditions. But the United States, we, we think we've gotten quite far away from this sort of worship, right? And what's popular now is a different kind of Protestant worship. 
where uh, there still is a wonderful show being put on. And again, I don't want to say that these are not Christians and they're not doing Christian worship. I also like going to these sorts of concerts, right? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't hate worship music, right? Um, I, 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 it's, it's, but what's going on there, I think we need to be aware of. Number one, uh, in many Protestant churches, the goal of worship has been to encounter God in his word, right? And if we've heard a very good sermon, I don't know, I hope my sermon's going all right for you. Maybe it's not, but, uh, uh, you know, you want to feel like you've encountered God in the Bible, right? And that's good. The Bible is God's word, but it's ultimately meant to give us, direct us to where God and Christ are in the heavenly sanctuary, that we can have an experience with him there. In other traditions, the goal is to have a really good worship service. And the way that is understood, if you, t- if you read what these worship leaders are saying, is that there comes a point in the worship service through the music where you feel like, like time has stopped. And that is the point at which you are supposed to feel like you have connected with God when you feel like there's no more sensation of the passing of time. But remember, what are we supposed to do in our worship service? We're supposed, to under, we're supposed to experience a story of the unrepeatable events of God and then join with him together at the part of the story where we are now, where, God is before, where Jesus is before God in the heavenly sanctuary, and then anticipate his soon return. That's the goal, is to join with God's story. And how are you supposed to do that if you feel like time has stopped, right? Well, you have to understand that in these traditions, God is understood to be outside of time, Right? Of course, that's how it works for the Eucharist as well. The only way Jesus can come down in there over and over again is if the sacrifice really occurs outside of time. And that's how it is. In, if you dig deep into Roman Catholic theology, that's how it's understood. That notion of God outside of time has persisted into most Protestant churches. And so when it feels like time stops in the music, you go, oh, I've really, really connected with God because I've had that experience of sort of, by analogy, being outside of time. Rather, I suggest that what we need to do as people who understand the story of God and want to experience that story is to take what we can from these traditions because they do offer us a lot and instead repurpose it to give people who are worshiping an experience of joining with Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, that's a big ask, you know. You're not going to hear this sermon many other places in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've talked to maybe one or two or three other people at Andrews University who understand these sorts of things. But I think it can start now, right? Even if a worship service is not put together with the intent of programming for this, and again, this is in the realm of interpretation, right? This is going to take some time to understand how this comes together and how this develops, but in our private worship at home, and even in our worship here, we can find a time when we, through, our, uh, through intent in our minds, can say, ah, this is a time when I can imagine myself before God in the heavenly sanctuary. Maybe it's during the worship when you feel like you're joining with the angel choirs and the music. 
Maybe it could be during the time of prayer. You can imagine the prayers going up like incense before God's throne as it talks about in Revelation. Maybe it can be during the preaching of the word when you come to have a better understanding of the character of God which is expressed in the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary. But somewhere, this is my challenge to you, somewhere as you go forward in your worshiping experience, in your private worship at home, in your corporate worship here together at church, come with an intent to experience Jesus together in the heavenly sanctuary by what you're doing with your body. And as you do this, you will experience what you believe to be true, and it will be made truly true in your heart. Is that something we can commit to doing together? to experiencing Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. If you'd like to do that, just raise your hand. I'm a preacher. I have to make an appeal. Just raise your hand. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face toward you and give you peace. Peace be with you all till we meet again in God's house and on his day till Jesus returns. Amen.